welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, and Essential Conversations podcast brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. It is a trauma-informed practice to take a moment and pause before beginning. We invite you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, to pause with us. And we've invited one of our guests today, Sergeant Sean Hess, to lead us in a centering practice. Thank you. Uh, Before we begin, I I just wanted to say that this is a very simple exercise that I present to the officers and new recruits. It's, uh, It's something that doesn't require a lot of practice, and it's able to ease your mind and get the stressors down and really kind of relax you. We use it in a lot of different practices from de-escalation to working on the firing range. So it's, it's called box breathing. It's a very simple exercise of, of taking a breath in, holding it for a four count and releasing it. And um, I'll kind of walk you through it for uh, just about 30 seconds here to kind of get you in the, in the right frame of mind and, and to uh, bring down your stressors. So when we're ready, we'll begin. So, Take a deep breath in, count of four, one, two, three, four. You want to hold that breath, two, three, four, and blow it out slowly. One, two, three, four. Pause for a second. One, two, three, four. And a deep breath back in. One, two, three, four. We'll pause for a second. One, two, three, four, blow it out slowly. One, two, three, four. Once more, hold. One, two, three, four. Take a deep breath in slowly. One, two, three, four. Hold that breath. One, two, three, four. Blow it out very slowly. One, two, three, four. Pause for four seconds. One, two, three, four. We'll do another deep breath in. One, two, three, four. Pause. One, two, three, four. And blow it out. One, two, three, four. Now resume breathing on your own. That's a very simple exercise. I think that you could definitely uh, lower your, your blood pressure and get your breathing under, under control. Thank you, Sean. I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And I'm Andrea Dalton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. We would like to introduce to you our two guests today. The first, you've just heard, he guided us through this practice. Sean Hess, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh been on the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department for almost 31 years now. Uh, started off in uh, patrol, uh, worked my way into investigations. I was in the robbery unit, homicide, uh, did community policing. I've been a sergeant for uh, about 20 years now and uh, been involved with uh, the crisis intervention team uh, mm-hmm. about that long, about 19 or 20 years, and I've uh, been the uh, crisis intervention team supervisor for the past six and a half years. 
Thank you. And Aaron Nipmeyer. Aaron is our other guest today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Aaron. Sure, Roxanne. Um, I am the superintendent of schools at Lafayette County C1 School District in Higginsville, Missouri, uh, which is just east of Kansas City. I have been here at the district for 10 years. I've been in education for 18. Previously, I was the director of special services for the district, and I've kind of helped lead the charge of uh, trauma-informed schools for our district and been involved in our county-wide approach. Uh, We have all six public school districts in the county working towards developing our trauma-informed practices. Uh, And I've worked with all the staff members from those schools as well to kind of bring that into into the county. Thank you for being here. I think I can say for both myself and Andrea and many of our teammates that we've been inspired by the work that both of you have been doing and leading and your teams. And so we're really looking forward to getting uh, to have this conversation today. And today we're really going to focus on obstacles. Uh, There are some obstacles that are kind of common, but I think there are also obstacles that are pretty unique to each setting as we try to implement trauma-informed care. And I think uh, just one of the comments I'll make before we start diving into this conversation is just a reminder that there is no checklist for how to be trauma-informed. There are actually checklists, like there are published checklists out there, but we don't think that that actually does the job of changing the culture. Just meeting those bullet points doesn't actually make you trauma-informed. And so sometimes that can be really frustrating because you do run up against, you know, things people or uh, policies or, you know, procedures or deeply held beliefs in a system that make it really difficult to change. So that (laughs) sometimes the the obstacle you run into is in the mirror. Well, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes the obstacle is oneself. That's very, very true. And I think that discomfort that we feel when we hit those obstacles can trigger our own stress response. You know, we talk about that a lot in trauma-informed care. It's you know, paying attention to how the stress response happens in your body and then what results from that in your behavior and how that can be. I mean, sometimes we hit those obstacles that can be triggering or or re-traumatizing for us because of things we've encountered in our own past. So um, just kind of within that context, what we would like to talk about today are what some of the obstacles are that both Sean and Aaron have encountered and how they've been able to work around some of those. So uh, Aaron, if we could start with you, what are some of the obstacles that you faced in implementing trauma-informed schools in your setting? So, Andrew, you said it, I think, best as, as, a, as a public institution, we, we serve a, a community and we serve constituents and we have many policies. Uh, we have internal procedures. Um, you, know, you, you have the cultural component of your, of your district. There's there's a lot that goes into culture change, and and I think specific to the school systems, professional development for teachers, uh, up until pretty recently, and, and even maybe for some people still ongoing, is it's, it's more of a one and done approach. Um, when you think about a particular curriculum that you're teaching or a methodology, you're going to go to a, a training and you're going to learn it that day, and then you're going to go back and you're going to do it in your classroom. Developing a trauma informed school is so much broader than that, it's all encompassing and, and trying to overcome that barrier of, you know, hey, this isn't just uh, we're going to talk about this at the at the back to school days or at, a, at one professional development day. We're going to talk about this and it's going to permeate every single thing we do. That's a big change for a lot of folks. And, and, and I don't even know that we're all the way there. And we've been doing this for about five years now. I, I can't guarantee that we're all the way there, but that's 
that is a that's a huge obstacle to overcome and it does take some some leadership from from the top down to make sure that 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 conversation is being had when you're when you're developing policies and procedures and talking about what is what is our chromebook what is our one to one policy look like for technology and how do we make that trauma informed what does our discipline policy look like and how do we make that trauma informed what does x y and z look like and how do we make that more trauma-informed. It's just a lot of hard conversations. Yeah, that makes me think about how I, I know in a lot of organizations I've both worked in myself and also worked with that a lot of times the perspective is like trauma-informed care is this extra thing. It's like a, a separate thing or it's a different thing. It's one more thing, <laughs> I think, as a lot of um, the attitude about it. And I remember even like my very first exposure to trauma-informed care when I was working at the state hospital and I thought that it was going to change everything about our culture, about the way we treated our patients and um, maybe even the way we treated each other and change is so hard if there's not that leadership to continually reinforce that messaging. I think that that's a huge obstacle and especially because you get busy, right? And there's so much to do. There's limited resources already. Uh, Trying to add one more thing seems really insurmountable a lot of the time. But, you know, I think Roxanne maybe could talk about this a little bit too, you know, that the way that we kind of change from it being one more thing to just how it does permeate the whole culture. Do you want to speak to that a little, Roxanne? Yeah, yeah I, I do think when we describe trauma-informed culture, we have often used uh, a metaphor, um, a couple metaphors, but the one I think that really resonates most with folks right now is if you think about your phone, you know, the tiny little computers we carry around in our pockets and there's apps, which are the things we do every day, you know, our specific um, specialties, but then there's an operating system. And if we compare trauma-informed care to the operating system, the thing that makes all those other apps run and run well, and in our case, run with compassion, right? Run with an understanding of the neurobiology of trauma and the neurobiology of resilience. If we can use trauma-informed care at the operating system to run the apps, then I have found that that helps with the um, obstacle of, oh my gosh, I have so much, there's not one more thing I can add to my plate. Or some other times I've heard people say trauma-informed care isn't something you add to your plate. It is the plate. It's it's the thing that holds everything else. In fact, it might be Andrea who said that, but I've certainly heard people. She's like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it was a good metaphor. Uh, I'm intrigued and interested to know, Erin, you know, for, for teachers or school workers, I'm thinking especially right now, we are seeing this in healthcare as well where we are in a state of crisis, right? Like our brains are really kind of fired in the stress response all the time. Well, it's for police officers too, right, Sean? Like we are in this place of dealing with the urgent, dealing with the immediate fight the fire in front of you, right? And I have found that that is an obstacle to changing culture because culture change really does require this kind of prefrontal cortex access where you can utilize your executive function to consider, um, you know, how my behaviors impact me and those around me. What are the long-term consequences where I can organize my resources and do future planning. And I wonder if you could speak to that, how you've gotten around or worked through or supported people to navigate that barrier of, I can't do something new right now that requires my prefrontal cortex function because I am stuck 
in a crisis. Like I'm in a crisis response. Well, last year we, we didn't address it. We acknowledged we were in crisis. I mean, like that, that's the only way, I mean, you were in survival mode. We, we were in an emergency situation. We were surviving. Um, but I think to answer your question, you know, long-term planning that, that still requires some longevity in, in your, maybe your upper level administration, uh, someone who has that passion for, for trauma informed to be, to be able to bring back that conversation and that, Hey, we're, we're, we're getting out of the weeds. Like I know this year is still chaotic. Um, and this year is still crazy, but it is not the same as last year. We are not in the same crisis mode we were in last year. We know a little bit more what to expect. Not that we're out of the weeds, but it's not the same. And so, you know, once we were getting out of that end of the school year crisis mode stuff, okay, what, what does next year look like? How do we address it? We started having those conversations of, okay, how do we bring this back? What does it look like when we, when we come back? We were uh, unfortunate enough to uh, lose a student um, over the summer. Um, and we've had a couple of students in the past year that, we, that we've lost or former students, uh, three in the past year. So that adds an extra element into everything because you, you do have to help the staff address their own yeah. compassion fatigue, their own Absolutely. Uh, emotional needs. You, you have to acknowledge that. Um, and so it's, it is a lot of tough conversations and I've, I've made mistakes. We've made mistakes in the district. I think being honest with yourself about those mistakes and admitting them and then, and then moving on. And this is like, you know, we did them from a point of, we were trying to better ourselves and then you move on, but you have to keep talking about it. Yeah, that's excellent. I heard several things in your answer. I heard that first of all, you just named what was, what was true and what was real. Like this year is stress response. We are just dealing with COVID and that's okay. We're going to address what we need to address, right? Just naming it. And I also heard you say having someone who's kind of an internal champion, right? Who's just going to keep looking forward and planning for the long-term while addressing the current crisis. And then I also heard you say, it's important to deal with the trauma and grief of your staff. It's important to acknowledge and support your staff when they have trauma and grief uh, in not just something as strange and overwhelming to us as the pandemic, but something as heartbreaking to us as losing a student. And so um, I, I thank you. I think those are all really important things to note. And those are tips and tools for our listeners. And it makes me want to reach over to Sean now, because when I think about trauma and grief in your staff, right? I think about our police officers and the kind of every single day, um, secondary trauma, primary trauma, compassion fatigue. Some of them have some moral stress or moral injuries. Some of them have some burnout. Those seem like pretty big obstacles for um, changing culture on the police force. So can you speak to how you're navigating some of those things? For sure. Um, the police culture, uh, just by its own self, is resilient and resistant to change. Um, and sometimes that's from <laughs> leadership on down. And, uh, you know, uh, we we oftentimes acknowledge that we have a problem, but say we'll fix that problem in-house internally instead of 
reaching for the tools and the and the and the best practices available. So we're we're lucky that CIT training has done a lot of the heavy lifting before trauma informed care. It, mm-hmm. it really took the brunt of a lot of uh, of clearing a lot of barriers early on, uh, almost over two decades ago. And so, hang on, uh, yeah. hang on one second. Some people might not know what CIT means. So could you tell us what the CIT uh, means? Sure, it's crisis intervention team. And basically, it's 40 hours of specialized training for law enforcement officers to better interact with somebody in a mental health crisis situation. Treatment over jails pushed, um, different de-escalation skills, techniques. Uh, it's just a different mindset on policing. And like I said, that that's over two decades ago that we've had that in Kansas City. And so they, they, that has done some of the, the heavy lifting or breaking down some of the barriers on that. So um, about... Eight years ago, about nine years ago, we, we started doing trauma-informed care within the CIT uh, training, the 40-hour block. TMC's own Marsha Morgan pulled the wool over my eyes and says, hey, you need this little class in your, in your training. <laughs> and I, I went, okay, sure, you know, I'll do anything for you, Marsha. And, uh, and next thing I know, we had trauma-informed care. And so uh, I remember the first class, the officers are like, what's an ACE score? And what does this have to do with, you know, uh, my job and stuff like that. But after they stopped being skeptical and looking at the train that was being offered, I think that the buy-in was there. It, it's, uh, you, you know, you, you, uh, you start realizing there, this does have a place with our job and it does, you know, CIT was never created, uh, for a police officer's wellness. It was basically created to help people in our community and to interact with them. But as a byproduct, it, it did focus law enforcement on their own self. You know, of why do we have a high divorce rate, a high burnout rate, a high suicide rate? Why do officers die so early in retirement from health defects? Mm-hmm. I mean, alcohol, you, you name it. And uh, I think that people just thought that was part of the job and that, you know, that the Okay, that that comes with it. And uh, I think that what CIT did was refocus some of the energy onto law enforcement that, hey, we don't have to deal with this. We there, There's answers out there to work on that. And, uh, and trauma-informed care just kind of slid right in there with that. And all of a sudden, um, it, it got you to focus on, you know, that it's not one event, but a lot of times officers mm. get that death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, and, mm-hmm. and what that does and how that affects you. And I've, I've seen hardened officers take a, an irrespective look at their career and realize, you know, how much have I seen and how does that affect me? And how does that relate when I go home? You just can't turn that on and off more, no matter how hard you want to do it. You know, that hypervigilance and stuff like that. Um, uh, we, we have a slide in the class, and I think it really tells the story. It's of an iceberg, but you only see portion of the iceberg and then all that's mm-hmm. underneath the water. And I said, that's the trauma that you take with your with your career and your law enforcement is that you don't see all that stuff. And it's hard to, to visualize that. And so officer wellness really came out of trauma-informed care. That, that's where this was born and, and focusing on, on officers' health, on, on how we could have a long career, a good marriage, um, be avoiding addiction, and, and work through that hypervigilance and, and have a good retirement. I mean, and so I think once uh, those started playing out, uh, I think that the buy-in was really, it wasn't, it wasn't that big of a jump, you know, on for that. And I think that really came to play last year. Um, we had, you know, uh, in the middle of a pandemic, 
Uh, and then you throw in the social unrest. And right. really, we had a lot of uh, a bad stuff happen in a short amount of time. And you had a lot of people mm-hmm. questioning their career choice and what mm-hmm. they wanted to do. And uh, the thing was, we were able to debrief officers. We were able to have counselors on site. And, and I think that that saved a lot of careers, if not lives, I mean, yeah. uh, on that stuff. So it, it's 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 good on one half, but uh, I, we don't do enough. You know, I think... Um, it's saying, well, we have trauma-informed care, but are we a trauma-informed care department? You know, mm-hmm. and, and so there's a difference between offering the trauma-informed care with the crisis intervention team and being trauma-informed care. And, and you guys know what I'm talking about on that is that it should be for everybody and it should be encompassing our whole our whole career from the start of uh, when you join the academy till you retire. And then even in retirement for our retirees, um, you know, I talk about the suicide rate for law enforcement and stuff. Nobody tracks the retirees' suicide rate, mm. and that's just like once you retire, all right, you're off to pasture. You 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 cross the finish line. Well, that's not the life's finish line, you know. And I think that that's a hard go for a lot of of cops is when they retire. What do I do with my with my life? And, and uh, so I I think that there's a lot of potential to expand the trauma informed care. I think that just getting the leadership to buy in on that and make that, you know, that we need to jump, not just dip our toe in it, but jump both feet into it. One of the real benefits of trauma-informed care when you start to like integrate it into your culture is that it, it eliminates that barrier of the us and them. Like this is not just those people, (laughs) right? It's all, it's all of us that are experiencing trauma in lots of different ways in our work, in our lives. And uh, one of the things that we've read about recently was a kind of a slogan that we've adopted. I wish I could remember who said it now, but trauma-informed care is human-informed care, that it's really about the way all of us respond to stress and trauma in our lives. So yeah, Aaron. I, I should have led with this, Sean. Thank you for your service. I, I try and remember that with our, our local police department as well as our caregivers, because when they've responded to some of the situations in, in our town, I know how much that affects us, and I know that that affects the officers here, and I'm sure in Kansas City as well. They one of the one of the crossovers that you made me think of was teachers, and, I th- and I th- I'm sure it's the same for police officers. They're expected to tough it out, right? You're, you're expected, you know, to work long hours uh, for, for little pay. You're expected to, you know, always be 100% and on for for the, the people you're serving. That's in healthcare too. And one of, it, 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 and one <laughs> of these, one of the things that really has come to the forefront in the last few years for me as a leader of our, of our school district and organization is the idea that that's almost unreal. Like that's somewhat unrealistic. And, and, and we have to find a way to provide true well-being for, for our employees, not just, I'm a big meme person. There was one earlier that kind of talked about that I saw uh, earlier in the spring, you know, and said, how do we take care of employees in the well and in the workplace? And employees were saying, oh, we want, you know, better pay, you know, uh, more employees. So we're not overworked. So we're not short staffed. And they said, no, no, no. You know, the leader's like, no, 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 try, try yoga. Right. right. No, no, no offense to yoga. Uh, uh, I can't apologize. <laughs> you can't but yoga idea, yourself out of burnout though. Yeah. You can't yoga no, exactly. yourself. Like, there's no contortion you can do. <laughs> right. There's, and, and that's kind of like putting a bandaid on, on, right. mm-hmm. on a large scale. What like you, right. At some point there has to be a recognition 
and in a realization that there is a reason for the burnout in in mm -hmm. the the police force. There's a reason for the burnout in the education field. We're I don't know how many tens of thousands of teachers short this year in, in Missouri, hundreds of thousands in, short in in the country. But there there's a reason for that, and we have to recognize it, and we and we have to address it. Right, and the the reason. I think that trauma-informed care speaks to that reason that when you take a human brain and you subject it to this kind of environment, whether it's the acuity, the intensity of police work, if it's the intensity of uh, education, being an educator, if it's the intensity of working in healthcare, whatever that intensity is, if you take a human brain, a normal human brain, and you subject it to these everyday stresses, it will struggle. Like that's normal. That's what human brains do. And human brains need specific things to live well. Like you said, to have a sense of well-being, not just surviving, but how do you get to flourishing? How do you get to, like Sean said, you've retired and you have the next 20, 30 years, right? To enjoy your life and are able to enjoy it because you can navigate the stress and, and pain and trauma of what you've experienced. And so I really like that you're speaking to that. And I'm wondering if either of you has a story either a personal story or someone you know or seen um, where someone struggled to see the value of trauma-informed care and then shifted, kind of learned to appreciate it because either they realized how trauma was impacting them and how this could help support their resilience or appreciated how it could support the resilience of their team. Anything come to mind? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's I got uh a lot of different stories of officers that, you know, oh, that's, you know, I don't need that stuff that that's, you know, uh, and then, um, and, and I'll tell you one in particular, this guy was really resistant to, um, CIT because he didn't think that it went to being the, the, the police officer, you know, we, we arrest bad guys, take them to jail. That's what we do, you know? And so, um, and, and, and he, he told me that before and I'm like, all right. So, um, uh, a couple years later, he calls me in the middle of the night and it's like, Hey, um, I got a CIT question. I'm like, well, this is unusual, you know? And, mm. and, uh, I got that friend and he's struggling and what it turned out to be was one of his, uh, the children were having issues and all of a sudden, you know, the shoes on the other foot. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the CIT stuff that we didn't equate to being, cool for cops is now all of a sudden on this guy's mind. Um, so we got him help that night. Uh, got his uh, kiddo back into some services, got everything cooled out. And then the, the next class, I uh, guess he comes walking in the door to be trained. And, uh, so in, <laughs> yeah. and, and not only that, but now this person champions uh, CIT sure. and trauma-informed care because now their eyes have been open. And, and so I could tell you a, bit, a lot of different stories, just very similar to that. But this one was to mine because of how resilient this guy was to, to this training. And now, now how it's changed their outlook and their family's outlook. They do speaking and they work with uh, hmm. some of uh, uh, family providers and stuff uh, like NAMI. And so it's, it's kind of a cool whole switch. It's always yeah. so interesting to me how the people who resist it the most end up being like the biggest champions later on. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a really important point too. Like don't discount the people who at first are like, eh, I don't need it or I don't want it because uh, they might be they might be your biggest and, workers, and that's supporters. I, I think Andre, we we if we need to expand this to all law enforcement, not just the CIT culture. I mean, um, who are or more predisposed to accepting trauma informed care, but this needs to, like I said, I really think that the guys from the day one 
and in through retirement need need to be in, engaged with this. And and we wear a vest to protect ourselves, right? Why not put a vest around your brain, right? I mean, that, that's what trauma informed care is. I mean, in my opinion, I love that story that comes to mind is it is not so much the like individual stories, but just day one when we started to now and the conversations that are being had. That probably makes me the, the, the proudest uh, and the most excited is when not me saying those words or not the initial trainers saying those words, but it's it's the staff that we've worked with. It's our building principles. It's our leadership and saying things about what's what's happened here, not what's wrong with this kid, you know, using the language that we've talked about or saying, you know, just looking at things through a trauma-informed lens and, and being understanding of that uh, and understanding of where a, a parents come from and, and how that affects a kid and creating an environment that that is beneficial to that child. That is a pretty um, profound change when people start asking that question, when they don't go first to, gosh, why is that guy doing that? Or why is that kid behaving that way? Or why are those parents behaving that way? But they start wondering, I wonder what happened, not just in an adverse childhood experience way, but like, I wonder what just happened. Where did they just come from? Mm -hmm. Like just 30 minutes ago, what happened? Right. So that's, that's very insightful. I do wonder if either of you could speak, or maybe Andrea, you have a thought or a story about this idea. Um, Sean mentioned it pretty early in the podcast, the idea that police officers are resilient. And I agree that they are. I agree that humans are resilient. I wonder if anyone of us would like to speak to the difference between um, resilient, meaning I don't need any help or resilient, meaning I am an expert at getting the help I need when I need it. Uh, You know, that, that strong, smart people are experts at surrounding themselves with the help they need when they need it versus not needing help. Could, could any of you speak to that dynamic or that change? Teachers are both. I think (laughs) probably pleased to the same, to a certain extent. Um, I think there's a, again, it goes back to that mindset I talked about earlier that we're, we're expected to just do it, just, just bear down and, and, and get it done. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of that mindset of, I'm just, I'm going to get it done. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I'll work through this and I'll get it done and I'll be fine. But then we've developed into this idea of, you know what? No, I need to step. I need to step and and, and get some help right now. I, I need to step away and then either recenter myself or we have, a, we have an employee assistance program, part of our benefits package. And then we talked to a lot of the staff this year because we, we lost that student pretty recently in the summer. And so on our first day back, when we talked about our social emotional learning and our suicide awareness stuff, and we said, listen, this is tough. This is a tough topic. Remember, you have this as a resource. And I told the story of my own self last year and I struggled um, with the crisis and, and the transition into the superintendency and everyone just being so mean to each other. Um, and I didn't reach out for help and I should have, and I have now um, as we start this year. And I, and I shared that story with, with folks. Uh, and then later that day, as I'm walking around with the staff, I, I had a teacher I don't know very well, but I know who she is. And she, you know, caught me to the side and said, Hey, I have a question for you. Sure. What's going on? What, what can I answer? And she's like, can you tell me a little bit more about how that works at EAP? We're seeing that slight cultural change where it's, it's where we're talking about those things. So it's not just, you have to grin and bear it. It's, you know what, this is maybe a little bit more than I can handle right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to reach out. Yeah. And it's so powerful to hear your leaders say that to be able to normalize that. Cause I think that is one of the, one of the things that contributes to that individual perception that I'm just going to stick it out. I'm just going to like, I'm fine. Um, yeah is is the culture that is created from the top there is often like you know not enough time not enough resources not enough staff um so we got to you know we just kind of try to get by uh and that urgency that yeah. 
you know, constantly being in as an organization in a stress response. Sona out there of, of, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm the leader. I'm in Charlotte. I'm, I'm so I've got it. So together, look at me. Right. And if people never realize that, yeah, but sometimes it still gets me. And sometimes I have to step aside and get that extra support. You do it. I think that is part of that. You have to normalize it and talk about it. Well, it's one of the principles, right? Building trust. We do that through transparency and being authentic. And so when our leaders are willing to get vulnerable with us to show that you can be strong and wounded, right? You can be running a very complex organization and have stress and need help with your stress. I think as we as leaders model that, then that gives permission to everyone. And so I, I just want to commend you for the way that you're modeling that. And, and I know Sean had some thoughts too. I, I uh, want to give you a chance to answer that. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we call that the John Wayne attitude in law enforcement. Uh, you know? I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, this is <laughs> don't need no help. Yeah. Right? And it's, uh, uh, yeah. And I, I remember the first time that they gave out EAP cards and, uh, my commander at the time tossed his in the trash. And so what did I do with mine? You know, it went right the way, you know, and it, it is from lead on down, yeah. but now you look at the, the police department and we have social workers embedded at each division station. So mm-hmm. how far have we come as a, as an organization that we have uh, social workers that, that are there. And, uh, and I think that's, that breaks down those barriers and that, that allows those officers to say, Hey, you know, if we have social workers working with us, you know, that's okay. If I have a a personal problem and stuff like that. So I think you're, 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 you're weeding it out a little bit. Uh, there's still ways to go, but just get get breaking that down that it's okay to ask for help. And, and I think that, you know, when I came on older generation, um, you know, you were expected not to ask for help. If you, that's what's seen as a very big sign of weakness, and I don't want you, if you, if you're, you're weak and ask for help, I don't want you going on these calls with me because I can't trust you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you would, you would suck it up. Uh, we're seeing a different generational approach. And, and I hope Aaron maybe sees that too, with the kids going through school now where they're more open to different ideas and asking for help. And so I, as, as more of the younger guys go through the police department, I think that you're going to see a, a switch of this, that they realize that it's all right for asking for help, you know. Uh, we are, we're not all alike. And, and I think myself personally, I always had the hardest time with, it's okay to have a bad day and to say you've had a bad day. And sometimes, and, and it's not just men, it's the women in law enforcement too. Uh, my wife works hospice and, you know, she's a nurse there. And I was like, how depressing. She's like, no, not at all. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's helping the people and the families. And so I think that if you take that approach, you know, it's okay to have a bad day to say something sucks, you know? And so we're seeing a, a switch and I think it's going to get there. It's just time. Well, let me give you some encouragement around that uh, change that you're seeing, because what we've learned in the field of critical suicidology is that one of the main drivers of lethal suicidality is refusing to seek help not having the help seeking behavior. That is one of the drivers of this epidemic of suicide that we see. So when you say there's a new generation or a change in the culture where we're seeing people open to asking for help, to me, that's really hopeful because that is a key determinant. It's it's almost an anti-driver, if you will, of suicidal behavior, Uh, excuse me, of lethal suicidality, not suicidal behavior, but lethal suicidality. So if we can normalize that help-seeking behavior, again, back to what Aaron said, you know, modeling it to what you've said, being willing to say, yeah, today sucks. Tomorrow's another day. But just showing that, 
I think that goes a long way to creating this trauma-sensitive, trauma-responsive, trauma-informed culture where people can heal and thrive. So thank you for highlighting that. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, are there any final thoughts that either of you would like to share? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so uh, I would like to let people know that the crisis intervention team unit in Kansas City uh, is available to assist uh, family members um, y- you know, during the day. Um, you could call the number anytime, um, or you could reach us at our, our website at kcpd at cit.org by email. Um, but there is... T- CIT available 24-7 on KCPD. If you are in crisis, have a family member in crisis, uh, when you call 911, you could just ask for a CIT officer and one will be dispatched to the call with you. And uh, it's, it's very easy to do. We have over 51% of all patrol officers are CIT trained. Excellent. Thank you. How about you, Aaron? Um, my only... Yeah, my only closing thought is to just kind of remember it's it's a journey, not a destination. This this trauma informed process there there's no end. You just keep going and getting better and improving yourself. So it's, you know, no race, no finish line. It's just a, it's, it's 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 hard work, but it's good work to be doing and just and just keep at it. Thanks. Thank you. Wonderful conversation today. Thank you both again so much. And yes. uh, we just want to highlight a few key takeaways as we wrap up. Um, I think the first is uh, I, w- I was really inspired by, and uh, I hope others are too, that when you're in a leadership role, uh, one of the key ways to build trust and authenticity is to name suffering when it's there, uh, name the trauma, name the stress, name the situations, and then modeling the help-seeking behavior, uh, doing what you need to do to take care of yourself. I mean, not only does that allow you then the capacity to take care of others, but it also demonstrates to other people that it's okay to take care of yourself because this work is hard and we need to reach out sometimes. We can't always do it alone. Yeah. And a second takeaway that I'd like to highlight is that obstacles arise. It's normal. It's natural. They're going to happen. And so it's really important to have an internal champion or team of champions, ideally, to do the long range planning of trauma informed culture change and to keep driving that change, um, to take breaks as needed, but to keep moving the organization forward. It is key to have internal champions and change agents. And I think another takeaway that tags into that a little bit is don't write off the people who are the resistors. Uh, they may end up being your internal champions down the road. Indeed, <laughs> uh, They may be the ones who are the biggest cheerleaders or the biggest supporters or the ones that are, you know, encouraging everybody else to join in. So don't write them off just because they seem a little reluctant at first. That's right. That's right. We've definitely seen that in our own work, right? Yes, for sure. All right. And then the final takeaway today, uh, it's really the image that Sean shared when he said, you know, you wear a vest uh, in his work, in his line of work, you wear a vest to protect your heart and your internal organs. You wear that uh, bulletproof vest. Trauma-informed care uh, is really about putting a vest around your brain, you know? So another way to look at that is when we look at the neurobiology of trauma and resistance, we understand that we're all humans. It's not really trauma-informed care as much as it is human-informed care. And if you are human, if you have a brain, then these principles and practices can help you thrive. And so that's the final takeaway. Um, It's not something that's unimportant. In fact, it's crucially important. Put a vest around your brain. 
take good care of your brain. Thank you so much, Aaron and Sean, for joining us today. We want to remind our listeners that you can get more information at the Mid-America ATTC website, that we have a virtual room of refuge for you that you can access 24-7. There is a variety of support for your own well-being, access to our YouTube channel, and you can subscribe there to our newsletter, Conscious Connections. So again, thanks to our guests, and thank you listeners for joining us. It is our hope that where you work, and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring.